theyeshiva.net. So we began last week to learn the Maimer of the Baal HaTanya, which is a posse comparison re'eh. And we began the discussion about what it says in the Zohar, that matzah is michle de mehimnusa, which means bread of faith. From this he went on to the second paragraph to discuss why the beginning of the Ten Commandments, Hashem introduces himself in the beginning of the Aseris Hadibris, Hashem introduces himself as the God who has taken you out of Egypt, not something which is far greater and grander and more magnificent and, frankly, more extraordinary and more, more supernatural. Creation of heaven and earth. This is the famous question of the commentators. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi and the Kuzari, Rabbi Avram Evanezra, and many other Mepharshim. And from this, the Balatanya went on to discuss Bariches at length and elaborate on the fact that creation is essentially defined as Hashem's words, Hashem's speech. As the Pasuk says in Tehillim, Bidvar Hashem Shemayim Nasu. The words of Hashem are what make heaven. Over Ruach Piv called Svam, the breath of his mouth, all of the legions, all of the other creations. Or as Chazal put it, the Mishnah says in the Ethics of the Fathers, chapter 5, that Basarim Amoris the world was created through ten utterances. And so we have many sources when creation is described in Torah. And by our sages, it's usually defined as a speech, an utterance. If you read Parshas Bereshis, the story of creation, it's always, God said, let there be, and there was. Vayoymer elikim yihi er, vayoymer elikim yihi rakia, vayoymer elikim tatshaya aretz, vayoymer elikim yuma eris, vayoymer elikim, ultimately nasa adam. Every single creation, every every day, Sunday through Friday, the six days of creation, it's always a result, a manifestation of Vayoymer. Vayoymer alakim, which means, of course, Hashem said or Hashem spoke. Or if you wish, remember, as children they would do abracadabra, kedu, right? So somebody once told me, or I read somewhere, abracadabra comes from Evra. I create as I speak. <laughs> My speech creates. So creation is the final Hashem's speech. One of the characteristics of speech is that it captures, it represents, it comes from the person. And it captures a certain energy or a certain thought or emotion or idea, whatever you're talking about. But nonetheless, everybody understands that a speech, a word, a letter, does not contain in itself, does not express and capture the full totality of the essence of the human being. In the example that we always give, 
the ray of the sun comes from the sun. But nobody's going to say that the ray captures the full solar core. It comes from the sun. It's an expression of the sun. It can be very powerful. It can give you a lot of... Uh, it can give you the nutrients you need, the vitamin D you need. It gives us heat. It gives us light. And it allows for life to be on the... To, that allows us to, to have life on the planet. But nonetheless, everybody understands that still a ray of the sun does not capture, does not represent, does not manifest the full intensity, the full heat, the full light, the full energy, the full electricity that exists in the sun itself. That's what we say in Ashrei. Which means, Hashem is, is large, great, Gadol, and He's extremely extolled. And then we say, but His Gdula, His greatness, you can't investigate. There's no inquiry that suits it, because all inquiry will fail short. So the Alter Rebbe brings this Pasek here, but in another Maimer, which we learned once, he poses what seems like a contradiction. First you tell me he's very great, then you say, by the way, don't talk about it. It's like you'll say, you know, this person is so, so kind, such a great person, so wise, so sensitive, so generous, so selfless. Uh, The truth is, there's nothing to talk about, there's no way of describing it, so don't describe it, don't start describing it. David HaMelech in Tehillim starts describing it, and he says, by the way, no description is available. Is he contradicting himself? Of course he's not. He's talking about two aspects, and they're both true. God in the language of Chassidus, is talking about Mamalek and it's talking about Hashem's speech. It's the greatness that we can observe through our eyes, through our nose, through our ears, through our five senses, our hands, our mouth, and furthermore, through our brains through our sensitivity and our discerning and understanding and appreciation of what we see in creation. As he puts it, he says, because he, his essence is infinite, so the ray of light is also infinite. And therefore, one can marvel, and marvel for, uh, not just for years, but for generations, and for millennium, for millennia, on this on this reality called the world, the universe, the creation. Or as Darizal puts it, that the divine energy sustaining creation continues for nun alafim yavlus, 50,000 jubilees. And each jubilee, each year is an ascent, is a higher state of consciousness than the previous year. And each jubilee is a higher state of consciousness. But all of this is within the ray, within the speech the speech that's manifested in a revealed way through creation. That's Gadol Hashem Omohulo Ma'oid. It's excessively great. But then he adds, But if you want to talk about if you want to talk about the essence, we can't begin to investigate it or inquire about it or discuss it because we don't have the tools for it. We don't have the ability to articulate it. And this, he continued in the third paragraph, is the unique distinction 
between what we talk about when we speak about appreciating the existence of Hashem and the word emunah in its ultimate sense. There is the phenomenon we know as Hasidio Masailam. Hasidio Masailam means good peoples, literally the pious ones among the nations of the world. And he said, what makes Hasidio Masailam Hasidio Masailam? That they appreciate, they believe, and they discern the Koya Chapayel Benifal. And I said it's incredible words. They discern the divine energy that activates everything in creation and creates the world from, and creates something from nothing, from a state of absolute nothingness, comes somethingness. And he says, and some of them, it's not just an idea, it affects them, it moves them. And furthermore, it results in behavior in their moral code, in their moral sensitivities, not to do something that's wrong, not to do something that's bad and immoral. This is not a Jewish inheritance. This is the universal reality. This is where ultimately all science is heading towards, all physics and cosmology and biology and astrophysics and astronomy and all the branches of wisdom, those who are honestly seeking the truth, this is where everything is heading towards. This is not just a, a, a Jewish gift. This is the reality of the entire universe and humanity, all of humanity, blessed with that unique cognitive ability, the cognitive experience, the unique cognitive faculties, which sets it apart from all other living creatures, has that ability to be able to discern it intellectually and to internalize it emotionally and to live with it practically. Three steps. What is the muna that relates to the Jewish people? So the Alter Rebbe used and employed extremely powerful words. He says that if I'm only moved from the hisbainanus of yeshmei and from the meditation of somethingness from nothingness, you know, I, I always have to make this disclaimer. It seems like he's going to minimize it. But you, you only minimize it after you appreciate a little bit how grand it is, how amazing it is. But he says, after everything said and done, not for this did the divine soul come down into the world. Not for this did the divine soul, which is a piece of God, have to experientially depart from the whole and enter into the reality of our physical universe. This is what you call a good good, a good amuna for non-Jews. But then there is You, Atta. Moshe says, there was an experience that you were shown, that Hashem Alekim Enoid Movada. That's what we call Amunah. The first level, maintains, you don't need the word Amunah. The word Amunah literally means belief, faith. He says, if you use your eyes, you'll perceive it. True, God can't be perceived with the physical eye. 
or with the physical senses. It's not that physical object that I could see with my eye. True. But as we've said in the past, you also can't see your eyes. <laughs> anybody, unless you're looking in the mirror, anybody, everybody sees everything else, but I can't see my own eyes. In other words, my source of seeing, I don't see. But nonetheless, we don't need real Lamuna for this. The Alter Rebbe maintains that somebody who opens himself or herself up with an open mind, without bias, and therefore without confirmation bias, without preconceived notions, without deep subjective paradigms that may blur my judgment and eclipse my objectivity. When a person really opens themselves up to the reality of the universe, there is no choice but to conclude, as the Navi Yeshaya says, Lift up your eyes to heaven and see who created this. Or as somebody once said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. To be a real atheist, you have to have so much faith in the random muzzle that our universe and our planet had. I don't have enough faith in muzzle, in such good luck. And the truth is, the more we study even one aspect of the universe or of the planet, never mind the coherence of the ecosystem and the balance of all of the forces working in perfect symmetry and organization to be able to support life on the planet and to be able to simply support the existence of the universe, the word mind-staggering is really inappropriate. It's far beyond what any mind can even comprehend. Gadol Hashem, this is the first Gadol. Wherever you look, you see the Pella, the, the, the grandness and the organization and the working together and the cooperation. And it's not cooperation of ten forces together. It's the cooperation of numbers that are untold and just within one particle of matter itself, the cooperation of all of the atoms working together. Just one, 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 one particle of matter, one little piece of matter. And within the atom itself, the organization. And then everything together and the planet and the universe. And that's just one aspect of it. So that's why it says you don't need, you don't need a muna. You need sensitivity. You need clarity. You need to get rid of bias. I have to get rid of emotional bias. I have to open myself up to truth to the best of my ability. Now, every person has biases, and every person has paradigms, and every person has a way of grasping reality. Every person is affected by nature and nurture, of course. But he says, but ultimately, at the end of the day, this is not what's called faith. It's perfectly logical. It perfectly makes sense. It's the most logical way of understanding creation, of understanding the reality called creation. There's the famous expression of the Chayvah Salavavis. Chayvah Salavavis is one of the great books of Jewish philosophy and Jewish ethics, Musa. It was written in the 11th century by Rabbeinu Bechaye Ibn Pekuda. Ibn Pekuda, his father was Pekuda. 
they call it duties of the heart, but then lovavis really mean, meant minds. So it was duties of the mind and duties of the heart. So he has a section, it's a very philosophical section, it's called Shar HaYichut. There's the famous section, Shar HaBitachin, the portal of faith, of trust, of trust. That's really the, the magnum opus on Bitachin, living a life of trust. But before that, there's what's called Shar HaYichut, the portal of oneness. The Chavis HaLavavis was a great critic of people who can understand the foundations of Judaism, but they rely on what's called faith and tradition. For it's from his opinion, when you rely on faith, when it comes to that which you understand, which you can understand, it's not faith, it's intellectual laziness. Go do the research. <laughs> the example he gives, and it's a very interesting example, he says, you know, if you have an understanding in pharmacy, if, if you want to have an understanding in herbs, in medicines, in refuah, in medicine generally, he says, don't rely on the doctor. The doctor gives you a prescription. Research it. You're an expert. Make sure it's good. If you have no choice, he says, if you're an ignoramus and you get a prescription, by the time you finish investigating and learning it on your own, it may be too late. You know, the illness may have spread. God forbid. You listen to the doctor as long as you know that he's a trusted doctor. So are you believing the doctor? Yes, you're believing the doctor. Are you foolish for believing the doctor? You're not a fool for believing the doctor. If the doctor has helped people for 40 years and comes with a good reputation and you know hundreds of people who really love this doctor and you yourself have been helped by the doctor, it makes sense to believe him. But it's not understanding it for yourself. So the Chayvah Salavav has said, if you can understand it, you don't have to believe. What's his point? His point is, you don't need a muna. So we call it a Muna, not because, Alter Rebbe says, why do we call it a Muna? So literally, I told you, the Sefer Ikrim says, we call it a Muna because these are things that are, uh, I can't see with my eye. You know, I, I need, you know, there's something you see with your eyes, and then there's uh, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And that evidence could, become, could be extremely strong. I mean, if you want to give a simple example, uh, you're sitting in a courtroom, right? And uh, <laughs> there's a question as if it's raining outside or not raining outside. You don't know. Everybody's indoors. <laughs> One guy comes in, he says it's raining. Do we believe his testimony? Well, you say, I don't know, maybe he's lying. Why should he lie? Well, maybe he's lying. Okay. Maybe he has his reason. Then one person comes in with an umbrella, soaked <laughs> with an umbrella. And then another 10 people come in without umbrellas, soaked. And then another hundred people all come in with open umbrellas and they're closing it. You can assume that it's raining outside. Yeah, it's possible that they all made up the story together. It's possible. But if you see a thousand people with umbrellas, <laughs> 10, 20,000 people, you can assume it's raining. Is it possible that it's not raining? You haven't seen it rain. So is that called a muna? I guess on some level you can call it a muna. But nobody's going to say you're a fool, you're blind, you're an idiot, you're irrational for believing that it's raining outside or that it's snowing outside, you know? People come in bedecked with, with, with lovely white flakes of snow. It's probably snowing outside. One person you could say, okay, I don't know, you know, he just, uh, he has a ski slope in his backyard, whatever. It's like a kaikult. He did Gilgul Shelig. He was rolling in the snow, the remnants of the winter. But Alter Rebbe says, really, the word amuna is not applicable here. The word is not amuna. One of the points the Chayvah Salavavas brings out, and it's very relevant to our times, 
because generally the atheistic view was that the world was always here. How did the world come into being? It was always here. If it was always here, so then there's no question who made it. The universe always existed. But in the 1920s, and it's fascinating, till the 1920s, this was the accepted view of many a respected scientists originating already in Aristotle. The world was always here. Suddenly, 1920, supported by Einstein's revolutions in the theory with the theory of relativity, scientists began to develop this theory that's today known as the New Bang, as the Big Bang. And in the 1960s, it was confirmed. And today, the accepted theory, I believe by 90 or 99% of scientists, the Big Bang. And what the Big Bang postulated was that the universe has a beginning. There's something called voracious. There's something called creation. There was a moment in time when existence came into being. Wow. And that right away poses the big question. How? Why? And what caused it? As the Chayva Salavavas puts it, 900 years ago, he says, when you say something had a beginning, if it didn't have a beginning, it didn't have a beginning, but if something had a beginning, you have to ask, how did it come into existence? What generated this beginning? Because before that, there was no beginning. What caused, what motivated, what um, inspired, what triggered the Bereshah's the beginning? You could say, it created itself. It brought itself into existence. But the Chavis al says, if it was not here, it could not bring itself into existence because it was not here to bring itself into existence. If it was here, <laughs> and therefore it developed itself into a further existence, so the question is, but what made it here in the first place? So you go back to the original source. So you have to say, oh, it didn't propel itself into existence because its existence was not here. So something else propelled it into existence. So what is that something else? So the Big Bang has tremendous ramifications. When you talk about a Muna, when you talk about existence, that literally, for more than 5,000 years, the view of many was that the universe was always here. Today, in secular science, the accepted view by 90 or 99% of scientists and cosmologists is that there is something called Bereshus. That first verse of the Torah was validated there is something called a beginning, a beginning of heaven, a beginning of earth. Which includes, of course, three things. There is a beginning, there is heaven, and there is earth. Heaven representing space, and earth representing matter. There's a beginning for space, there's a beginning for matter, and there's also a beginning for time. Now you might say that prebiotic soup, or cholent if you want to call it, that existed pre-Big Bang, that seminal point that then exploded and began to expand. And as a result of that expansion, expansion according to this theory, the universe developed, which, by the way, is eerily similar to how the Ramban, 13th century great Spanish commentator and philosopher and Talmudist and sage and doctor, and great debate, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman. It's eerily similar to how he describes the process of creation 
in his commentary on the first verse of Torah, Bereshis Aleph Aleph 1 1. It's eerily similar to what the Gemara says in Chagigadaf Yud Beis and in Medrash in a few places. Why God is called Shin Dalad Yud, Shin Dalad Yud, which means it's enough. Sha'amalai Lamai died because he told his world enough. Because when creation happened, the universe was expanding. That's what the Gemara says. It was expanding more and more and more. And it, if it would have expanded more, it would have all just ex- reverted back into you know dust. Until God said, die, enough. He has to limit and curtail the expansion. Fascinating idea, which is uh, which is exactly part of the theory of the Big Bang. That the moments after the Big Bang, I say moments. I'm, I'm using the word moments, but it's really it's, it's such fractions of time that it's even hard to describe in words. The explosion created the expansion, but not too much, and from that the universe was formed. So now you might say that original point, that original seminal point that exploded was always here. So there's no question. But if it was always here, why did it explode suddenly 15 billion years ago? If it was always here, you're saying there was too much pressure. But if it was here, ad infinitum, so it was always here infinitely. So if it was always here, what what happened suddenly 15.3 billion years ago? That suddenly created all this pressure that it couldn't contain it anymore and therefore it exploded. So you say, oh, because it was a limited amount of time. So it wasn't always here. So if it wasn't always here, how did it happen suddenly? So you'll say, well, uh, uh, it just it just came. <laughs> it came and there was a big bang. Oh, okay, that, does, that doesn't sound logical. So you say, well, well, how is God always here? Who created God? Right? You, you say, that wasn't here, but God was always here. But there's really another point, and that is, according to most scientists, time is also time is also a creation, which means time also begins with the Big Bang. Time did not exist before the Big Bang. In other words, there was no before before the Big Bang. Time itself is created with the Big Bang. Now, this is very hard for us to understand, but this is um, Stephen Hawking. Many physicists, even those who consider themselves considered themselves Atheists, if you will, speak about this fact that time is a creation. It starts with the Big Bang. So there was no time before. So again, what do you mean it always existed? There was no such a thing as always. Time itself is a creation. So what causes this emergence from a vacuum of absolute nothingness, this emergence of time with space, with matter, that then explodes and develops into our universe? That question has to be addressed by a serious person. So people say, well, science is going to get there. We're not there yet. We figured out the Big Bang. It took 5,000 years. Give us another 5,000 years, and we'll figure out the source of it. Zolzain. <laughs> Go to another source and another source and another source. <laughs> but at the first source, the first source, that first yesh ayin, you have to justify it. And you can't justify it through something that has similar properties to that first source, because then that itself has to be justified. And that's what we mean when we speak about God. We have no definition for God, but we know that it transcends time, space, matter. 
And that's what we mean, it always existed. Not it always existed in time. It always existed in the sense that it transcends time, space, matter. And therefore you can't ask how it existed before and why did it always exist. But when it comes to a point of beginning, we have to understand why it exists, how it exists. I hope I'm making myself clear a little bit. This is all when you're describing the first millisecond of creation. But then there's something else, and that is how it expands. The fine-tuning that was necessary in order to get from the Big Bang into the universe as we know it and the planet as we know it is even more mind-staggering, or at least equally mind-staggering. So it's not just the first beginning, but then having that develop into what we know today with such precision is, is, is half of a fella. It's, it's a wonder of wonders. Comes the al and says, all of this doesn't require a muna. That's the Chayvah Salavavah's point. You don't need faith. Real perceptive eyes can recognize it. True, he says, because the divine soul is manifested in a sackcloth. It's enclosed in a sackcloth that eclipses its vision. One needs to constantly meditate. One needs to constantly learn about this. Why? Because we have this natural blindness that eclipses our vision. And we take that which is secondary and we turn it into the primary source of reality. And we take that which is primary and we make it subservient. If we really had clear vision, we would realize the bitl ha-tofel legabe ha-iker. The bitl ha-yesh legabe ha-ayin. How the yesh, which means the physical matter that we perceive, is really an expression and a manifestation of the divine nothingness. And I told you many times, divine nothingness is really divine no-thingness. We call nothingness that which has no-thingness. It's not defined as a thing. So therefore I say it's nothing, it's no-thingness. My physical eyes, my retina, and the way my brain interprets reality, I cannot grasp this, so I say it's ayin, because it has no ability to be perceived and defined and articulated by my vision. But to reduce all of reality to that is ludicrous. I told you once there was a there was an astronomer in France, and he said once, he said, I looked through the telescope. He had a grand, extraordinary telescope. And I looked through all of the galaxies and the stars out of space. And I didn't see God. Must not be here. I didn't see. So there was a great musician, a violinist. And he says, it's so interesting. The other day, I took apart my violin. I dissected it into small little tiny fragments and pieces. And I used a microscope. And I viewed every single piece of my violin. And I did not find music. He used a telescope. He used a microscope. He didn't find God and he didn't find music. He didn't find music in the violin. Music doesn't exist, I guess. (laughs) Where would you find music if not in the violin? And of course he was describing the sensitivity that's needed. The subtlety that's needed. You're not going to find music in your violin. The violin is an instrument, a physical instrument, that allows the music to resonate, to flow through it. It's like I can't see my eyesight. 
I could see everything through my eyesight, but my eyesight I can't see. That is the source of vision. So the Alter Rebbe says, if one appreciates the truth, one realizes that the Gashmi is always bottle. It's always not just subservient, it's always subsumed and connected and aligned to the Koya Haruchni Aliki, to the divine inner energy that vivifies and animates and makes all creation exist. So because we're naturally blurred, we need this constant reawakening. And he says this is the first aspect of tefillah. The first aspect of tefillah, where we keep on praising Hashem every day, seems strange. Talking all day about every morning, Hashem is the Adin al Kalam Maisim. Baruch Shamavaya Oilam, Baruch Hu, Baruch Haimavaisa, Baruch Haisimiration. Okay, I got the point, Chevra. I got the point. God should say, Chevra, I got it. Thank you. Let's finish. <laughs> Let's move on with life every day. And we repeat it in many different ways with many different meditations and many different mantras and many different ideas and concepts and songs. The whole Psukkah Zimra. From the beginning of Davani, you finish Karbanas, which is the early service in the Beis HaMikdash. You start of Hoidu Lashem Kiru Vishmai Diyav Amim Alilaisav Shiru Loizamru Loisichu B'chol Neflaisav Yisallu B'Shem Kotre Yismach Leiv Mavakshi Hashem Every verse is meticulous and precise, but each verse in one way or another is describing the godless Hashem. And it develops. Haidu and Mizmer Shir and Hashem Melech and Hashiyenu and Baruch Shamar and Mizmer Lassayd and then starts the whole section of Tehillim, the last chapters of Tehillim. Ashrei and the Halalukas. And each Halalukah develops it further. And then we get to the story of the covenant with Avram and this story of Exodus, the splitting of the Red Sea and then Yishtabach and then we go into the blessings of Kriyashma where we continue this theme. And then we have Kriyashma and then we have Shemayin What's the theme? What's the message? What's the message? Just saying again that God created everything and God is great and God is real and God is authentic and Hashem has the power and Hashem runs the world and He rules the world and He created the world and you see the snow and you see the rain and you see the vapor and you see the fire and you see the animals and you see the reptiles and the insects and the mountains and the hills and the mammals and the fish and the birds and you should know He created it. And they all praise Him. Says the Alter Rebbe, this is a daily meditation because there is a veil that eclipses our vision, doesn't allow us to perceive the nature of reality. We look at the physicality and we're intoxicated. We're overwhelmed by the external veneer. So each day I need to cleanse the doors of my perception. I need to open my mind and once again allow myself to be engaged with reality. This is the perspective that must be cultivated every morning. It's a daily battle for transcendence, a daily battle for awareness, a daily battle for understanding what type of world you're living in, who you are, who the person near you is, and who the, what the universe is including every animal and every plant and every bush and every tree and every drop of rain and every lake and every pond, every sea, every ocean, every heart, every creature. 
including every grain of sand and every stone that you encounter. What is it? It's essentially a manifestation, an embodiment, a physical articulation of divine no-thingness. So why don't I see the divine? I don't see the divine because my eye takes reality and defines it in a way that is that is user-friendly for my eyes. I don't see atoms either. Do atoms not exist? I don't see elect- electrons. You know, I don't see viruses. I never saw the corona. No eyes have seen the corona. Till the 1890s, we did not know that germs existed. Viruses existed. The late 1800s, the early 1900s, they developed the tools to be able to discover there's something called germs, something called viruses, bacteria, fungi. Germs impacted humanity very profoundly, as did viruses, as did bacteria. But we didn't have the tools to perceive it. I need a muna that is a coronavirus in the world. You need a muna, you need... I never saw it. Well, I'm believing the doctors, well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but nobody says you need a moon you, don't, you, don't need a moon, you need a moon that there's atoms you need a moon that there's electricity you see the symptoms you see the symptoms and today we have even tools to be able to see that which could not be seen in previous generations so I could say these things don't really exist okay, you could say that but their impact is very powerful you could also say about your inner life that it doesn't exist But sometimes that's what you need to realize in order to heal yourself. Those things that I have no words for, that I've never seen with my eyes. And we know that the invisible impacts us in ways that are much deeper than the visible. The same is true when it comes to the entire story of creation. When we speak about godliness, we speak about the eye, and we're talking about the DNA of creation. Do you have DNA? Did you ever see your genes? But your genes impact you, right? At least somewhat, (laughs) to put it mildly. You want to know the truth? That which is invisible is usually much more true than that which is visible. It has a much greater impact and influence in your life. Look at the things that are most powerful and yield the greatest impact on your life, and you'll see each one of them is invisible. Now, you have to be careful here because a person can invent anything. You know, you could say the world sits on the back of a turtle. Our planet is sustained by the back of a turtle. Oh, it's invisible. Yeah, of course, it's more powerful. My point is not that not a person should suddenly develop a cultish attitude and therefore you could say anything because it's invisible. We don't go to the invisible just because it's not visible. Just because something is invisible doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> just because somebody says we can't see it doesn't mean it's true. It could be a farce, a lie. My point is that when we dismiss reality by maintaining it's invisible, I don't see it, therefore it doesn't exist, it's quite ludicrous. Because the things that impact you most and are the most consequential to our lives as people and as creatures of this planet are invisible. Genes, electricity, etc., etc., atoms, cells. My cells are also invisible. What is davening then? Davening is opening myself uh, up every single morning to this truth. What world do I live in? Who am I? I'm not a sack of meat and potatoes. Who am I? As Dalton Rebbe puts it, the function of davening is the animal soul, which means my biological consciousness can appreciate that the toffel is bottle the gabaya iker. Don't confuse the toffel with the iker. Don't look at the physical veneer that just seems concrete and dead 
and not allow yourself to align yourself and to realize how aligned you are, that you are really an embodiment, an articulation of divine infinity. Or, as some of us like to say, you are an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, authenticity, and redemption. And let's see a few lines inside. This is page 832, the second column. The paragraph starts, Vihine Yadua, but this is the second column. The line starts, Umerumas, Umerumas kol All this that we spoke about is intimated, it's, it's conveyed in the words of Davening in all of the many verses that are quoted. And he's going to give a few examples. Take the entire order of the blessing, which begins with Yoytzer He forms light and creates darkness, makes peace and creates everything, which is, of course, the first blessing after Yishtabach, the first blessing that precedes the recitation of the Shema. Take all this whole system from the words Yoytzer Oyer, Hameir La'aretz Vladar Mala Berachim Vetuvay Mechadash Bechal Yoyim Tamid Masibereshes. When you daven these words, I hope now that this will help allow you to focus, to take a deep breath, to ground yourself in this reality, and to allow these words to sink into your consciousness. And if you need an English siddur, a Russian siddur, a French siddur, or a Yiddish siddur to be able to understand the words initially, so be it. Because a person could daven in any language they want, or they could read the translation, even if they want to articulate the words in Hebrew. Until after a while, you'll understand the original. Because the words of davening are not easy. Even people who know Hebrew often don't understand the words of davening. For example, we say every morning, Pinois Tzva'av Kedoshim. What does that mean? It's in this section that Dalter Rebbe is describing. If you go back in Davani, beginning with Baruch Shama, which is called Psukid Zimra, the verses of praise, it's all Baderech Zed, all follows this path. This, this is the vision, this is the perspective. What's the opening of Psukkah Zimra after Haidu? And according to the Ashkenaz text, the Ashkenaz Nusach, Ashkenaz version of, of Davening, this is how you begin before Haidu. Nusach Svar is Haidu, then Baruch Shama, but the Nusach Ashkenaz Baruch Shama, then Haidu. That's why he says this is the beginning of Psukkah Zimra. What are you saying? You start off, Baruch, blessed is he, Sha'amar, who spoke, Vahaya Ha'aylam, and the world came into existence. What are you really saying? You're really saying, look at the world. Look at the world and understand that the whole world is a product, it's a manifestation, it's an articulation of divine, infinite energy. Baruch Sha'amar One Dibur, one divine Dibur is the source of existence. The entire consciousness that pervades all of reality, all of existence, spiritual existence and physical existence, spiritual worlds and the physical world, entire consciousness that pervades all of reality, which is ultimately that which is responsible for every physical phenomenon and reality, is essentially the a word of Hashem. It's Baruch Sha'amar Vahaya Elam. It's a Dibur Echa, that's what it is. Does that capture the solar core? It doesn't capture the solar core, but it's still infinite. 
This is something that belongs not only to Jews. This is something that belongs to non-Jews. True. Jews delved into this. Jews shared this with the world. Jews fought for this. Jews lived for this. But this is not the inheritance of the Jewish people. This is the inheritance of every single creation. Jew and non-Jew. And non-human. Humans carved in the image of God have the ability to discern, to understand, to be cognitive of this, to be aware of this, and to live with it. To live with a moral code that is guided by this awareness. Because if we understand this, it means, of course, what are the ramifications of this in life? It means we're all one. We come from one source. We're all integrated. We're all interconnected. It means, number two, there is dignity in every creation. It means, number three, nothing is a mistake. Nothing is random. There's purpose. There's meaning in every moment, in every experience, in every encounter. This is not just a Jewish ideal. He says, this is a universal ideal. And you don't need a muna for the word a muna doesn't capture this. This is an appreciation of Kaya Chapal Benifal. And of course, finally, it means we not only have rights, but we have privileges. This idea, first of all, gives us rights. Because if not, who says that you can't do whatever you want with somebody else if you have the power? Who said? It's all relative. Morality is subjective. So we have rights. Every person is in the image of God. But furthermore, we have responsibilities. We have duties to the Creator. And perhaps one of the most important things, number five, is really appreciating who you are. You are spiritual energy. Not just you have a body, and the body has electrical signals that allow it to live. No, you are spiritual energy having a bodily experience. (laughs) It redefines the paradigm of the universe. For this, I have to daven every day. But I davened yesterday. It's irrelevant. The intuitive experience of life is that I am divorced of divine energy. I do not see myself that way. I do not see you that way. And daily prayer allows me to daily align myself with this truth. So what's a muna? If this is not a muna, what's a muna? That's the next piece. The gifts of the Jews. The gift of the Jew, of Judaism to the Jew. That's a muna. All this is the basics. I'm calling it the basics, not because it's simple. Because it's the, but it's the foundation of everything. And it, it's really simple. But of course, it's not simple. As he said, we have a blindness. Then we come to step two. Step two, we're going to continue tomorrow. Friday morning, 7.30 a.m., Bezer Hashem. We'll continue this mimer. Please join us. We'll continue this nekuda. What's step two? Which will ultimately bring us back, which will ultimately bring us back to the matzah and the muna. Let's take some questions. The way I understood why God introduces himself as the one who took you out of Egypt and not as the one who created the world is because the Jewish people witnessed the exodus of Egypt. They saw the miracles. They saw the splitting of the sea. So this is something that they can authenticate with their own eyes, their own experiencing. But none of them witnessed creation. So that connection would not be obvious.
That's a beautiful insight, what you're saying, and a very good and practical answer. I would just add what the Mepharshim say. According to the Rambam, this is a mitzvah for generations. That a person is to understand, to understand that I am God. Because essentially, what is God saying? The Jews know God exists. I mean, they grew up with an amun in, the, in God. Moshe Rabbeinu came to Egypt speaking in the name of God. When he told the Jews, let's go to the desert. And the Jews said, what are we doing there? He's like, Hashem said. So there was always this relationship with God. Why are we going into a desert? Where are we going? What, we're leaving here. What are we doing? Oh, God said, I'm going to take you to the promised land. So what, what is he now saying? By the way, I'm the guy. <laughs> I'm the guy. So according to many commentators and the Rambam, this is actually the mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. He's giving the first mitzvah to the Jewish people by Sinai is that you have to be able to know about Hashem Alekech. If that's the case, the first proof is I created heaven and earth. You speak about the fact that creation has a beginning. The way I understand it is the Kabbalah speaks about the Tzimtzum. God withdrew his infinity. And he spoke ten utterances. And all creation is something from nothing. Which means God creates something literally from nothing. But man was created from earth. Which means he's something from something. Made from dust. And already been created from something that existed even though it's an opposite component. It's earth. The soul is divine and it was blown in. All scientists are trying to reverse engineer, figure out how this world and all of its components were put together and function. So Judaism starts from the cause and then studies the results. Science starts with the results and is working towards the cause. And it seems like they're getting closer every day. So the way I understand it is that Judaism goes back to the source and starts off with the source, which is ayin, and then discusses how things developed from the ayin, either created or developed from one yesh into another yesh. Judaism science doesn't have that tool, so it starts with the result, and then it goes up backwards. Yes, that's a very powerful point, and we'll see that point in the continuation of the Maimer, in different words. I think the way I understand it, scientists have it right about the Big Bang. But they're missing two cosmological steps before that. God's light filling the entire conceptual expanse of the universe pre-creation and the act of Tzimtzum, which is the act of God's self-withdrawal, the withdrawal of the infinite presence, the contraction and the condensing of the infinite light, creating a space where the universe can exist. The Big Bang is consonant with the beginning of creation, the first words of the ten utterances, Bereshis. But the two cosmological steps before that, scientists are still missing. You ask why we pray daily, And I see the answer to the question. Perhaps we can say it's the same question to us why we eat daily. We eat even though we ate yesterday. Because we're satiated and we use the energy from the food consumed to power and energize our daily tasks. If we haven't eaten today and we won't eat tomorrow and the next day, our body doesn't have the energy to be able to live. Maybe you could say, as it says in Medrash, that the, the, the carbonus, it says in the carbonus are God's bread. 
God also needs food. His food is the gratitude from his people, the mitzvahs we do, it satiates him, but only for a time, and he uses the energy from his food to power and energize and even motivate his daily tasks, namely to continue creation. So it does say in places that just like food, the soul doesn't need food. But the connection of the soul and the body requires food. So davening, like karbonis, is called Hashem's food because it connects the soul and the body. What does it mean? It connects the soul of creation, which is divinity, with the world, with the body. Next question. What's the role of a refrigerator? Does it have a role outside of cooling the food inside? No. It's its only purpose. The reason for the existence of the refrigerator is to cool the food. Otherwise, it's a huge, useless nuisance and box. The refrigerator can do its job as long as the flow of electricity continues. Should the electricity stop, the whole raison d'etre of the fridge is gone because its whole purpose and, and reason for existence is to cool the food and for that it needs the flow of electricity that, that is channeled through it. Should the fridge praise the daily flow of electricity that allows it to fulfill its purpose? You bet. <laughs> so of course we should praise the daily flow of electricity because it's what allows us to see who we are and fulfill our purpose. Right. So what you're saying is, if I would just put it in different words, is we're not just praising, and this is, I think, the point of the mimer. we're not just praising God and telling God, you're great, you're awesome, you're amazing, which is true, <laughs> but you're also telling yourself who you are. You're telling yourself you're awesome, you're great, you're amazing, not because you have a big, insecure, pompous ego, but because you're a manifestation of divinity. As much as you're talking about Hashem, you're talking about yourself, you're putting yourself into context, you're contextualizing yourself as the conduit for infinite energy. That's who you are. That's who you really are. You are the manifestation of divine electricity. As much as you're talking about people think that in Davani they're talking about God. Yeah, they are. And because of that, they're talking about themselves. That's the key. Because there's the kaya chapoyal benifal. So first of all, there's the element of gratitude, recognizing who you are, being grateful. And then there's also the element of really appreciating who you are, your identity, because the refrigerator doesn't struggle with bittel. The refrigerator apparently doesn't perceive itself as autonomous. Maybe it does, and then it's dead, and you throw it out. But the person can struggle with this, hence we have the, the daily davening to help us get in sync with this. Now, people have resistance to davening. You know, people are often bored, and they find it meaningless, and this, which is a normal... Uh, which is a normal, uh, which is a normal emotion. It's part of the human condition because this is this is avoid. This takes avoid. Tomorrow morning we'll have a shear. See you then. Wishing you, if you didn't daven yet, a meaningful davening to be able to find the koyach hapoyel benifel. Somebody wrote, "This is hilarious. I didn't realize that summertime already began in New York." Aha. He came on an hour later, you understand? Yes, yes, we changed the clock last Mitzvah Shabbos, so I missed a shear from Manchester. Okay, 
That's why we have something called replay. <laughs> That's what replay is for. But we change the clock, Mitzay Shabbos, spring forward, and we have sprung forward. So uh, everybody have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow morning, Be'ezer Hashem. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.